Hey, I thought I'd tell you uh, what I've been working on now during the pandemic. <laughs> that sounds great. Uh, I've been making a show, actually. And um, it's kind of a bit of a funny story. I thought I'd tell you um, a little bit how it started and what the show is about and just kind of tell you about the process because it's been pretty funny and I, I learned a ton of stuff. So, I mean, for many years, I, I've been making these shows and... Uh, yeah, that, that's also part of the story coming up that we've been making many shows. But um, for a long time, I thought, oh, you know, I don't really have a solo show. I've been doing all these collaborations with different people, like with you and and with Eric Langekel and, and, you know, whoever else. So um, I thought, oh, you know, maybe I could have a little solo show. That would be fun to do a solo show at some point. And then I thought, well, obviously what the solo show should be is just a collection of greatest hits of like the past you know, 25 years of my life. Cause I did a couple, I did like a 10 year retrospective after 10 years of solo, solo performing. And I did a bit of a 20 year kind of look back. I didn't really share that with many people, but I had some sort of sense of the passing of time in my body of work and blah, 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 blah. Um, not too form, not in such a formal way, but the 10 year retrospective show was kind of cool. It was, I did one, one act from each year uh, of my career up until that point. It was from you know, 1997 up until 2007 or six or whatever it was, right? 10 years. And, um, and so I thought, oh yeah, well, obviously if I make a solo show now, it's just going to be a retrospective of kind of the greatest hits of all the solo pieces that kind of go, go the best for whatever that's worth. I'm not saying they're perfect or even good solo pieces necessarily, other than it's just the ones that work the best. And that was kind of in the back of my head for a long time, for many years. And when we had, you know, Patrick Elmnert was producing our, our duo shows and stuff, I thought, oh, yeah, maybe Pat could produce my solo show. And I talked to him about it a few times and he was into it. And I started to think about what would that show be? And as I started to collect these, again, greatest hits or whatever you want to call it, um, I don't know, I wasn't like that excited about it. I wasn't just dying to do it. It was just kind of something I thought I should do oh yeah, maybe I should make that show. Oh yeah, I could do that piece and I could do that piece and that one wasn't so bad and obviously I should do this other one. It was all kind of straightforward, but I didn't really quite find the the hook or the, I don't know, the thing that made me totally excited enough to do it, right? Like I never did it. And then uh, I started um, collecting these little different pieces I was doing. And I remember, you know, I've been wanting to have this juggling machine thing for a long time, this uh, machine that, does the three ball cascade, but has no feedback. So it's just a mechanical device, kind of like the, um, the WC, WC Fields ball bouncing machine by Claude Shannon. But instead of it being ball bouncing, it would just be a cascade in the air. There's no um, pressure sensors or computers or, or visual you know, camera feedback loop. Um, it's just a mechanical action. So I've been trying to build that for, I don't know how long we've been, like 15, 20 years or something like that. So I finally got this guy, uh, Drew, I met him in Vegas and Drew made this juggling machine for me and it works. <laughs> and I remember the day I set it up in my home in Stockholm and it was working and I was just like, man, this is so cool. This is amazing. I was just so happy after so many years. And I thought it was really a powerful experience to watch that machine in person. I was just, there's something about it that was just really powerful, I thought. And I wanted to share that with an audience. And so I thought, man, uh, 
yeah, I got to do that solo show now. I got to put this juggling machine in it. And now I said, I'm kind of excited. And a couple of things happened when I said that I kind of realized that suddenly with this juggling machine, um, there was enough images related to this machine, like the walking unicycle and, uh, a few other pieces that I had done that I could kind of create a world around this machine that was maybe more specific than this greatest hits kind of idea. So I got really excited. I said, Oh man, I have this idea for a show now, a solo show. And, uh, I'm going to use this juggling machine. It's going to be all these contraptions, kind of all these machines I've built over the years and I can still do this retrospective, but it's focused in this one certain direction. And, you know, I get really hyped and that lasted about three days. And then, and then I realized that, you know, if I go perform this show, um, with my juggling machine and my walking unicycle and whatever else was going to be in it, um, you know, people could come see it and it's probably going to be the same people who come see the other shows, which is really cool, but also the same people who don't go see the other shows I do aren't going to go see this new show either because they're going to go like, oh yeah, Jay's doing a new show. And I got a little depressed about that because I thought this juggling machine was actually something really cool that I kind of wanted everybody to see. And not everybody that like, you have to see this machine. But I felt kind of bad that the people who wouldn't come see my show because they'd seen my other shows would miss the juggling machine, if that makes sense. Yeah. And so then I started thinking, well, you know, there is the, oh, there is this expectation. Oh, Jay, Jay you, you know, he's doing experimental whatever, whatever in the world that means, but experimental juggling or experimental performing, and it's always deconstructed and minimalistic, and there's no traditional production values, there's no overt light design or crazy costumes or crazy set design. I mean, it is all this folk circus, kind of minimalistic, deconstructed stuff we've talked about. And, um, and I just thought, man, that's just so sad that that's a barrier that people would have to seeing this juggling machine. And I thought, man, how could, I, how could I change this? And so then I got really excited <laughs> for a couple of days again, because I had this idea where I said, okay, maybe what I can do is I need to change the production elements, the framework to present the work, but the content can remain the same. So maybe what I should do is I should get a little red velvet curtain <laughs> and place it in front of the machine. <laughs> and have a little gold tassels on the curtain and pull the little string and then the curtain reveals and opens the little machine doing the cascade. And I was thinking, you know, if I make the presentation accessible enough, if I can get the people to look at the machine, they're going to be happy. Like, I don't think there's, you know, if I would wear the top hat and I would wear the ringmaster coat with the sequin vest and I'd have the, 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 the bull whip and the megaphone and I would do the P.T. Barnum you know, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show and blah, 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 blah. I do everything kind of traditional and standard and expected and accessible and whatever you want to say, normal or whatever those words mean, up until the point where I reveal the juggling machine that when you finally got to see the machine, you'd be happy. That was kind of my premise. And then that turned into this idea of having, uh, you could say, a and again, this is, I'm really oversimplifying matters here just to move the conversation forward, but having a traditional circus approach to presenting contemporary circuit, contemporary juggling or whatever. So I had this idea that I would do this maybe ringmaster character with the, with the full on, you know, ringmaster coat with the tails and, and with the top hat and maybe the curly mustache and with the speaking and the bravado and the whatever, 
you know, all those tropes uh, and, and cliches. But then kind of at the very last moment, when you get to the real, you know, the act instead of like the lion tamer, it's like me, me swinging three sticks or <laughs> you would get to the moment of the payoff, but the payoff, the content would be the actual uh, contemporary juggling technique that I've been exploring with my different, you know, cup heads or holy clubs or whatever, can videotape balls or whatever in the world, I, you know string balls and vacuums and whatever. And I thought that would be kind of a funny thing that you you engage an audience in a certain style up to that point of payoff, but then the payoff is this kind of, you know, unexpected surprise. But hopefully that surprise would be uh, pleasant <laughs> and not like turn people off to the whole thing. So that was kind of this idea of, of presenting contemporary, this is air quotes, contemporary uh circus with what but inside the trappings of this uh, traditional circus presentation and then i was listening to i mean i'm always listening to a lot of podcasts and i'm always looking on the internet and reading articles and seeing what's going on in circus and in the world and in, with art and and looking around the world and kind of always keeping my eyes and ears open to see what things are going to connect together with what i'm working on or you know see what ideas enter my world and i can I can use or talk about. And so I was listening to this podcast called Hideaway Circus, and they've done a ton of pretty crazy interviews, I have to say, over the past few years, like interviewing members of Franco Dragon's team or, um, yeah, it's been pretty fun. I, I found it a nice resource to listen to these interviews of, of indus industry insiders and really getting a glimpse into how the world works a little bit better understanding. So that's been kind of fun to to hear these different points of view on these on these interviews, and of course, some of the interviews also drive me nuts because, depending on who they they interview, it's it's uh, they all have their opinions about what circus is and how to do it, and I think it's uh, yeah, of course, it's just different to hear these different things. But anyway, on this podcast, uh, again, this is all during the pandemic and Corona, so they were talking about um, oh man, how's it going to be to have theater in the future with Corona because. At that point, um, this would have been, you know, summer of 2020, the discussion was like, well, if we have multiple performers on stage, they're going to all have to be distanced and they're going to have to have masks on. I mean, there was social distancing on the stage, right? Yeah. So the discussion was like, how in the world can we have a, how are we going to do shows anymore where there's a cast that's more than one person? And that was like something they had said on the podcast. Uh, that was one thing that stuck in my mind. How can we? How are we going to have shows that are more than one 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 person? Because well, I'm one person, then I have this idea for a one person show. But also, then they were talking about they were going to make a new project, and the idea of the project was something about combining traditional circus and contemporary circus in some sort of aesthetic and some sort of presentation. And I was just like, oh, that's kind of what I was just thinking about with this juggling machine. So I just uh, <laughs> so I just emailed them and I was like, hey, I got this idea for a show. Maybe you want to maybe we want to talk about it. And because they're producers, they don't just do podcasts They're They produce uh, their own shows. And they're like, yeah, oh, yeah, let's talk about it. Uh, like, uh, let's have a phone call tomorrow. And I was pretty shocked about that because that's pretty random just to go fishing. I call it like fishing. You're going to throw your your line out there and try to hook something randomly. And it's like, how often do you catch a fish or whatever, you know? So to send this random email and be like, hey, I was listening to this podcast and, oh, there was a couple of things that connected in my head. Can I talk to you? And they're like, yeah, call me tomorrow. That was pretty weird. <laughs> and so then I called them the next day and they were super enthusiastic about the idea. And 
they said, yeah, let's, let's start to try to make this show happen. They were, they were really supportive and really enthusiastic from the beginning, which also just to say is not uh, something that I've experienced much in my career, I have to say. Like there's, there's usually a lot more hoops you have to jump through or, or sort of games or, or networking or people or politics that you need to, you know, to get to, to get an enthusiastic response. And so uh, that's kind of how the process started. And it just kept going from there, um, which was which was pretty crazy. Again, I just want to say like that was a pretty unusual process in, in my world of how stuff happens. But do you have any? Yeah, uh, yeah. You, you, so, you, you had some questions, I think, from that. Yeah. Um, I mean, I have a bunch of things I want to know when you talk about it like this. Like, first of all, when you when you got start to talk to Josh and Lindsay. Yeah. What, what did you, did you just have material by then? Or did you like, how far along was the show at that point? Well, that's another funny, yeah, that's a funny question, which is because when, so basically I had, I just had this, it's just what I described, like everything I just said, I just had this vibe. I should do a solo show. It should be greatest hits. Nah, that's not so fun. Oh, I got this juggling machine. Oh, I could make this weird little personal world of these contraptions and all my mechanics that I've used over the years. Like my dad built me a bunch of stuff like these ski jump ramps and these little rolling ramps, these U shapes and whatever else. Right. So I had all these kind of constructions and that enabled juggling that I found related to the juggling machine. And then it was like a, it was a construction that enabled some sort of juggling technique. So I said, Oh, I could build a little world of that. And then I just went through that thought process of like, well, Nobody's going to come see it who doesn't normally come see my work. And I thought, that's so sad. So I just had this kind of, uh, in that idea of traditional and contemporary circus. So I just had these conceptual ideas, I'd say. I mean, the material also existed concretely because it still was a retrospective. It wasn't like, mm. I'm going to make new stuff. Yeah. But it was just a collection of stuff. So that kind of existed. But there was no, I mean, there was no show. There was no, I didn't have a video. I didn't have a script. I didn't even have a... I didn't even have like a piece of text about it, right? I just had this kind of blah that I just said right now, like to you. I mean, that was just my internal dialogue. And then when Josh and Lindsay from Hideaway Circus, when they were like, when I talked to him on the phone the next day and I kind of spit out some of these things and didn't even explain it very well, that they were in- excited and enthusiastic about it. I was pretty much like, in my mind, I'm thinking, this is awesome. And this is also crazy because I don't even have a show. Like I'm pitching a show to a producer that doesn't exist yet and they're they're enthusiastic about the pitch. That was pretty cool. I think in my previous experiences, um, you'd have to show the trailer, you know. Yeah, that's always kind of like this. Uh, in Sweden, we say moment 22. This Okay. What, what it means is that in order to do A, you need B, and in order to yeah, do catch B, 22. Catch 22, you, yeah. you say. Yeah, catch yeah. 22. Yeah. It, it's this like... Where do you, what do you have when you, when you start a show, so to speak, there's so many start potential starting points, I feel. Right. Cause some people are just like, I'm going to make a show and that's the starting point. Totally. But other people, I think they, like you, I feel you have a process next to your performance creation where you constantly accumulating material you're accumulating objects, routines, things, right? And then, so your starting point, I feel like, is it a selection? 
You but, mean in this project or in general? Well, in, in, if, if you talk generally about how you work, like... Oh, yeah, that's easy. I mean, <clears throat> I mean it, was, it was my friend Ocean Kalen who told me, again, when we worked together and I was 19 or 20 or something, um, and he said, you know, I think the role of an artist in today's world is to be an editor, mm-hmm. an editor of information. That basically, you know, it it was around the time of sampling and remixing and stuff. That was like that was like a really big deal back at that time when I was twenty. It's like the band would release the single, and the single would come out with remixes, and that was like a huge thing back then. The remixes, and there was this idea that to sample and and Napster was around and sharing MP3s and this kind of culture of mashups and whatever. Mm-hmm. And I re- that really stuck with me. This digital, this idea of a digital in a digital age that the idea of an artist is to collect and curate information rather than to actually create something new if that i mean this is a popular simplification but that image always struck stuck with me that oh as an as an artist you're more of an editor and that meant to me that you're collecting things to edit i mean you have to get material that you can edit that was kind of the job of an artist and that is my daily life i mean it is to look around on the internet on these forums and to dive into different little subcultures and to to read books and to go to museums or walk around and talk to other artists, talk to you, do this podcast with you, whatever else. And you're just collecting ideas all the time and you don't exactly know where they're going to turn up or how they're going to turn out or how they're going to connect or how they're going to be relevant. Yeah. But you're always just collecting these things and it's not random though. You're collecting them with some sort of experience in your mind. I mean, I've had my, I don't know if I can articulate it, but you've, you know, I've had my 30 years, whatever, performing. And, and so I have some intuition, I guess, towards collecting things um, because I have the experience of what worked before or what didn't work before. And then um, I don't think I can tell you very concretely what that process looks like because I think it's chaotic still and it's still probably slightly unconscious other than I do consciously know that I devote a large chunk of my time to this collecting of information and like rooting around in information. Like I find that to be a worthwhile pursuit in terms of creating something as opposed to like, Hey, I'm going to go into the studio today for eight hours and, and juggle. Um, it's like, well, maybe I'll go in the studio for four hours and then four hours I'm going to look around on the internet. I mean, that's, I think that for me is some sort of more productive process in my world. Yeah. Well, one thing one thing that I would like to do is I, I would like to situate this show that you're working on now a little bit in terms of like the other shows of your life. Mm-hmm. And I don't I don't mean shows in general. I want I, I mean specifically like solo full length shows because that that's kind of the first question that comes to my mind is mm. is you're from Ohio and you grew up unicycling and then you got into juggling and you kind of did, you know, like the IGA thing and started <laughs> performing more like corporate stuff. Mm. But at some point, I don't know how much of a detour it is in your, uh, from your perspective, but I, I see some kind of like shift where you go into a more contemporary mindset. Like it isn't obvious that someone who does, you know, juggling performance in in the format of an act suddenly thinks like hey i'm gonna do a a full length show of one hour and i'm gonna swing teddy bears <laughs> that i you know suspend from ropes from the ceiling like there is some kind of leap somewhere 
And I'm just wondering, is that gradual or is it like, what, what, how did you get from the Sakine vest to <laughs> the sequins, the, the sequins on the vest? Yeah. 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 Uh, to the Elmo uh, swinging Elmos. Swinging Elmos. <laughs> oh man. Uh, well, there's a couple of different uh, things that work here. I mean, one is just the, and this is something we're gonna, I think we're going to talk about much later. I mean, we're going to talk about this a lot uh, another time. But this idea of how do you, where do you place your work in the world and how can it survive? And just this idea of what are the structures by which you can engage that support your work? And, you know, you look around the world and your work can, can, you can, you can perform here or you can collaborate there. And so a lot of it wasn't really, I would say, totally in my control or by my choice, just to say it was more limited by what was around me and what the opportunities were at the moment, which really strongly relates back to working with uh, Lindsay and Josh too, in, in a really specific way, I can tell you in a bit. But um, basically, this idea of performing a longer show, well, that's easy, dude, because I was performing for the Cub Scout Blue and Gold Banquet, they needed a half hour. I did a half hour show. Yeah, and but then, there's... Yeah. And then I went to the country club, I had to do 45 minutes. Yeah, I think still there's a difference because... You know, like we've talked about the length of acts before and like in terms of like more of a like historical jugglers perspective. And mm -hmm. there's like Enrico Rastelli did 45 minutes at one point. Yeah. But Enrico Rastelli, like I'm sure he did an act and I'm sure it was like, like I don't have a clear reference to if that's actually true that he did 45 minutes. But that well that there's you know segments there's like act sure, sure, act, sure, sure. act and yeah, I'm yeah. doing this like there's a difference somewhere maybe it's not a length thing only it's also about like when you start to talk about a, a show it's, it's like integrated I have a, with a yeah and I have arc. a I have a beginning yeah. like it's not like I mean I could also stack you know five acts that are approximately 10 minutes long yeah but that's all super easy to answer I mean yeah. it was really straightforward so but I just want to point out and say that I was doing 45 minutes when I was like 14 years old mm -hmm. and I'm not saying it was a good 45 minutes or something you wanted yeah. to watch but that was not weird to me and I think especially just to relate that to the past few years teaching in circus school I asked some of the students Hey, what's, what's some of your dreams? And a lot of people say, I would love to do a half hour show one day. Yeah. And there's no qualification for what that means in terms of quality or style. Yeah. And for me, in terms of, if you just want to talk length, yeah. well, a half hour show, I did that when I was like 12, you know, and I know what they mean. They don't just mean, they don't just mean time, right. but that's the quality they talk about. And so if you can't articulate more than that, I don't think the length of time is, has any sort of, you know, no. it's no barrier. But then basically I went, um, I went to live after high school, I graduated high school. And instead of going to university straight away, I went to Celebration Barn Theater and I lived there as a resident artist in Celebration Barn Theater. And I had my company Blink with uh, Morty Hanson and Fritz Groba. And then that's where, you know, we were hanging out with Michael Menez and Peter Davison and uh, Tony Montanero, Karen Montanero, Abner the Eccentric. And that's where we, you know, we made this, this three-person mm. company. And then we had a 90-minute show. And just to say, that 90-minute show, and this is, this is, I'm saying the word show in the way you're talking about show yeah. versus my 12-year-old show. Um, it was just for the market, man. Like, you're going to play the Performing Arts Center in Caribou, Maine, 
we have to have a 90 minute show with an intermission. That's just the market. Mm. So then you would do two 45 minute halves or whatever it is, right? Mm. And then you'd have that format. So that was really straightforward. But then that really got uh, underscored or like uh, boosted up when I started pretty much around the same time traveling to Europe. And in Europe, uh, you had these these uh, more, we can say, artistic performances of, of circus or juggling that were, again, in this meaning of the word show that you're getting at right now. And so, I, you know, I worked with Gandini juggling around that time, Gandini juggling project, uh, 98, 99, whatever. Okay, just so that I understand here all the kind of steps. So when you're talking about longer shows, like half hour, 40 minutes, yeah. when you were 14, mm. those shows, they were kind of like stand-up comedy format, talking into the mic, yeah. that kind of show, right? Or You think I had a mic? Okay, <laughs> well, talking. No, 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 no. Uh, yeah, I had a mic. Uh, the, yeah, no, it was like, it was, it was, it was, um, it was like, it was literally like this dude. Yeah, I told the jokes that I heard everybody else say. Mm. I told those jokes. Uh, and then um, I was like, oh, now I'm going to do three balls. And then I would put on whatever Joe Satriani <laughs> CD or cassette tape I was listening to that week. And I knew that song, you know, Flying in a Blue Dream. It's a Joe Satriani song. And then, oh, that song's like four minutes. I can jam three balls to the length of that song. And then the song runs out. And then I try not to drop for four minutes and do some new tricks and whatever. And mm. and then I did my double stick. And then I did my three clubs and whatever, whatever. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I, I understand the format then. Yeah. And then you came up to Maine and to Celebration Barn. And there was this 90-minute format. And that already existed in the performing arts yeah, and then so that was that was that's what people did, and that's how you got booked to the theaters. Yeah, and that wasn't mm-hmm. this format of like stand up comedy and talking and whatever. I mean, it it and, and actually the the change there between those two worlds of the stand up comedy and the and the yeah this this style of performing juggling to the more uh, performing arts venues. Yeah. That transition I talk about in this new show that I'm doing with uh, Hideaway Circus. Like that is part of the content of the show. There, there's a couple of specific things that happened at Celebration Martin Theater that really shaped my, my life with performing for sure. Okay, and up there you said you had this little group called Blink. Yeah. But did you do solo long full length performances too, or did that come later? No, no, I I didn't do my first uh full length solo performance till Blink was done. So Blink was done, and yeah. then you were working with Gandini. No, no, Blink was done, and then I did my first solo stuff. I mean, my I first solo show uh, was two hours long. And what what was the name of that one? Uh, Quest. Quest. You can okay. find that on my YouTube channel. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> no, I uploaded all these archives to YouTube, and I kind of flooded my, my account with all these old videos just to just to remember what I did, so you can... Okay, so you did Quest already up there in Maine. No, it was in Ohio, actually. Oh, you went back to Ohio went back and to you Ohio, did Quest. Yeah. And that one, did you tour that one, or was it more of like a shorter project? Like, what was the... I just did a weekend, I just did like Friday, Saturday, Sunday, of uh, that thing in a theater. It was like a 800-seat theater. Okay. I remember selling it out, which was really cool, mm-hmm. um, for all three shows, and yeah, it was pretty. I was pretty pumped. I mean... I, two hour long solo show, but don't get me wrong. I mean, I mean, there's a couple of funny stories about that, which is, uh, it was a two hour solo show, but it, I would say it was basically a step above. I didn't have the microphone anymore, but I was still playing the song I was listening to. Mm -hmm. Maybe not that week. I had curated the, the songs a bit more, (laughs) a bit more. 
And then the routines weren't random, but it was still five minutes of three balls, five minutes of three clubs, five minutes of maybe yeah. four balls, five minutes of whatever. I mean, it was still that format. And then I did some like more kind of like conceptual things in the middle there, uh, like here and there. Like I would, I would do some stuff with volunteers or balloons or something. I don't know. I don't remember. Um, but I do remember going to 531 for the first time, probably in the year 2000 or something like that. And I did a show where I was swinging the Elmos, which is what you're talking about. You saw that show 2000, 2001 or something. And I remember um, there was some French jugglers there. Was it Philippe Maynard and Jerome Tama and Martin Schwitzke? Not that early. Uh, they came later to the 531. Okay. You well, must, yeah. well, anyway, then I mess up my dates. But I just remember doing one of my shows in this style. This is the mm-hmm. same style I had. And I just remember Martin Schwitzke coming to me and being like, you can't do a show like that. <laughs> like, that's not a show. You're just, you're just doing something for five minutes. And then you do something else for five minutes. And you do something else for five minutes. That's not how you do a show. And like, he, I just remember him freaking out. And that was the first time that I, that was like literally the first time I ever was conscious of like, oh, there's another way to do a show. <laughs> It just didn't enter my mind before but then. But Blink, bl- uh, Blink, you yeah. never had longer pieces there. Was uh, it also maybe like we five, added, maybe six, our ball, seven. yeah, maybe the ball act instead of five minutes was eight minutes, you know. Mm. We didn't have any like 30 minute long pieces or whatever. It was still structured very much like, I mean, Michael Motion's show is really like, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. two minutes long piece, then three minutes long piece, then whatever, then intermission. I mean, it's really act, act, act still. Yeah. In that format. So that was the American style that was, that's in the performing arts centers, you know, back then. Right. So just so I get this right, Quest, what year was that? 97, I think. Okay. 97. Okay. Could be. Um, and then, so you did that for a little bit and then you started working with Gandini. Yeah. Around that time or... Yeah, 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 little, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then 531, you did some... And so, okay, so... The next, your next solo show, since that's, I'm trying to focus this a little bit because you, you've done so much, yeah. but let, I'm trying to focus this on just like solo performances, yeah. full length yeah. so that we can understand like the, the development toward reflex through just kind of that line. Mm. But what, what was the one after quest? Do you remember? No, man, I have no okay. idea. I did a show the next year called Question, with, okay. but that had a cast of like eight people and it was like a four hour long show. And also I remember is it was a four hour long show and I think most of it's up on YouTube. I don't remember. Um, but, but, but let's me ask you this question yeah. then. So you're saying, yeah, but it was still kind of like five minute piece, three yeah. minute piece, that kind of thing. Yeah. So when was the first time when you were like, okay, maybe I can, you know, do something other than that, like just format wise, yeah, what was that? That was 1999. I had this show called Idea Ratio. Mm. And uh, the name is funny. It comes from Jerry Martin, you know, Jerry. And, yeah. and somebody had been talking to Jerry and they'd been like, man, Jay is just full of so many good ideas. And Jerry just laughed. He's like, no, 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 no. Jay has the same good idea to bad idea ratio as everybody else. He just has more ideas than most people. Mm. And I like this idea of the idea ratio, like being the, okay. the same. And I think that's a fair, totally fair uh, thing. I totally relate to when he said that. I totally relate to that comment of like, yeah, I don't think 
that there's any, I don't have inherently better ideas or worse ideas. I just have a lot of ideas and yeah, half of them are bad and half of them are, you know, better than the others. I don't know. So this idea of idea ratio though was fun because it was, it was my fascination with narrative. It was my first, it was in 1999 and I was just like, wow, what if I did a show that had a narrative? Like, what would that be? And so I tried my best to write a show that had a, in my mind, a linear narrative. Um, I'm sure. And again, I think idea ratios up on YouTube as well. Um, and when you watch that show, I guarantee you'll think I'm completely on crack for saying it has a narrative because it was still completely abstract and completely obscure. Mm. Um, but this idea of having a narrative really solidified the hour. It really pulled the hour together in my mind as one thing to try to have a through line that was literally, uh, again, a, li- a linear narrative that was cohesive. Um, so I think, that, and that, but that was also a show with like five or six people. I had cast members that did different okay. things. Um, but that was like, I'd say the start of having this idea that the show isn't just five minute long mm. snippets of, of uh, rhythm, rhythm and mood <laughs> that you kind of string together into some sort of like first half and then second half, right? There's, yeah. there's a larger through line so, so in terms of like <clears throat> how when you popped on the onto my radar in terms of like solo performance work that's building weight so that's 2003 mm. right yeah well no i mean the first one was in no it was 2001 or 2000 even oh really was the first version and then 2000 was it 2001 and Maybe you're right. Two thousand three. I don't know. We're, I'm terrible. This is my yeah. this is my weakness. I don't remember, but it was somewhere. I if, if you say two thousand three, I feel it was earlier, but it doesn't matter. Maybe it was two thousand and one. It was yeah. early two thousands. <laughs> yeah, early two thousands. Yeah. Okay, so that was fairly close then to idea ratio. Yeah, yeah, that was the same era. Because uh, building weight, that was straightforward to me. Like full length show, solo show. Some pieces were longer. Some pieces were more like, <laughs> yeah, you know, acts. But other pieces were more like you put this thing together or you juggle around a structure. It wasn't like, like in in building weight. So you have this structure of of what is it? Plumbing. Yeah, it was PVC pipes. P- PVC it was kind of like a jungle gym you find on a playground. Right, kind of like a grid. Yeah, cube grid. Yeah, grid. like like yeah. imagine you take you take the three D space in front of you and divide it into cubes. Right, and that's what I literally did with the with the structure, segmented so, space. <clears throat> so for me, there, there's a very clear building weights like, on YouTube. Okay, great. <laughs> then you can watch it there. Yeah. No, but there's a clear difference between. Let's say let's take your your six ball multiplex piece in that mm-hmm. show, yeah. And when you juggle three uh, stage balls around the grid structure, yeah. Because when you juggle around this grid structure, that's kind of like that's a move. That's movement around the structure, and you're exploring that space, and it's not like r- a routine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see what you mean. It's something else. Like, whereas the six ball multiplex stuff, that's like you have a routine. You have sequences and you have transitions between tricks and you're doing these things. So there's a progression there in terms of content that I can see. Yeah, there's different levels of, of the depth of the choreography or the or the rhythm of each individual section. I mean, definitely the juggling the balls around the 3D space, that wasn't improvised. That was choreographed, but mm-hmm. at a different level of detail than the six ball piece and presented right. in a in a different 
at a different rhythm, right? Like a different kind of pacing and a different sort of mood and whatever. Yeah. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, no, so so I so there I can see like, uh, I can see a shift from mm-hmm. like an act based uh, structure, right? Yeah, yeah. You get into some other kind of 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 world where there's okay this piece is more conceptual about like moving around this shape and then we watch that for five minutes well what what you're trying to do you know at that point is you're trying to build a world you're trying to create a world in which there's rules and there's things that make sense that's coherent to this world that you're building yeah and so you're exploring different facets of that world and trying to present that world to the audience in different ways that it makes sense somehow hopefully to you and to them yeah i think that's what you're kind of saying especially in that show and i want to say too because i talked about the the title of idea ratio from jerry martin the idea of building weight the title it's one of my uh favorite michael motion stories um you know i was talking to michael one day and he said that um his friend was a shipbuilder. he was building ships and uh when you build a big you know cruise ship or a freight freighter freighter or whatever um, you know, it's a boat. So the weight of it is super important. I mean, that's the key thing. So it doesn't sink. Mm-hmm. And, and as a structural engineer, that's like one of the most key components is how much does it weigh? Well, this, this guy, he had turned into an architect and now he was making buildings. And when he made his first building, he was talking to the client and they were designing it and whatever and the, and the, the parameters of what the building should be. And he said, well, how much should the building weigh? And like, and that was like so irrelevant to... Do you know what I mean? It yeah, was, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was carrying that over. Either. He was carrying that over from the shipbuilding where it was really important. Now he was in a new world and this this kind of uh, seemingly, you know, meaningless piece of information was still crucial to him. Mm. And I thought that was a really nice way to uh, capture the feeling that I had for that show, for all the material, material in that show where I really felt that a lot of material in building weight was... Um, I was the shipbuilder who was now the architect <laughs> and yeah. I was asking how much should the building weigh, which was seemingly an irrelevant question unless you understood that I was a shipbuilder in my previous life. And then it became really important. Mm. And I don't know why, but I had a lot of feeling like that with the material in that show. Um, it just was a nice expression of this, this. So this idea of building weight, how much does your building weigh? I thought was funny. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, that's, that's interesting. But so, so when you just, just to see here, then, when you created that show building weight and you decided like i'm going to juggle around this structure yeah like do you how conscious was that 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 was kind of a a shift from more of an act type structure or was it a shift to you or was there any anything there that was conscious to you that that's worth mentioning well no yeah again no it was super planned out and it was just this idea that i'm trying to create a whole world Mm. And I'm trying to let the audience into this world and this, that the world can't always be the five minute act that the world has more depth than that. And the world has more rhythm, different rhythms and, and whatever. So, um, yeah, I mean, I mean, definitely the, the juggling the three balls through the, through the structure, 3d structure was more, you would say flat. If you would sort of graph out the energy, the highs and lows mm. of that moment, it was very flat I yeah. mean, on purpose, like consistent. I mean, hopefully not flat meaning boring, but just flat meaning rhythmically consistent. Whereas like, yeah, the six ball multiplex piece has your classic kind of highs and lows of a five minute, you know, 
rhythm of an act. Maybe it goes high at the beginning and a little bit lower. And then in the middle, it peaks a little bit. And before the very end, it goes up again. If you're going to graph out this kind of energy or, or rhythm of the piece. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it was, it was just, just a, uh, uh, well, what do you say? I don't say process, but cause I, I don't know if I can call it a, a really, tr you know, conscious process, but it was just a constant struggle towards integrating everything more and more and more and more to that. It became all part of the same thing as a part, as opposed to separate, separate, uh, separated out yeah. into different sections. So I want to get to objectify your other show and also through prototype. Okay. Uh, and then just briefly until okay. we get to reflex. Okay. But but is there something between so building weight and prototype? Do you have like a solo show in between there that's that I was... should be mentioned? Like in terms of progression I'm thinking about. I have no idea, man. I'm okay. sure there is, but I have I literally okay. can't I can't remember anything. Well, we don't need that. We can just go to prototype because prototype comes before objectify, right? No, it's the other way around. Oh, it's objectify first. Yeah. Okay, so I'm I'm trying to see the progression here. I see the progression from quest to I mean idea ratio, building weight. Hmm. But so then objectify that's how does that like conceptually differ from building weights yeah that's pretty that's pretty easy because objectify was a really specific project and one thing i want to mention about all these things you're asking me we we're only talking about like the artistic component but there's also the production side there is yeah. the the money and business side of everything and just to say, so, so far on all these projects you've been mentioning, I mean, Building Way, I played in Bryant Lake Bowl Theater for, you know, three months in Minneapolis. Uh, you know, I did a Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday run for, you know, three months or something. And I was, you know, basically, I was hanging up posters and I was sending out postcards. I was doing newspaper interviews. I was doing the taxes. I was counting the box office money and doing the split for the theater, whatever, you know. So it was all it was all self-production. It wasn't like production on the lowest level where I didn't really have a venue. Like I would say Quest, like I said, I did a sold out weekend of shows, but that was it. That was the quote unquote run of that show. That's not anything you would talk about today in terms of a, of a serious quote unquote serious project or I mean, in terms of a, in terms of producing. Right. It was just a one off kind of thing. And all these things were more or less like kind of on this very much lower level of, of production. But then with uh, idea ratio, I had an idea because, uh, oh, sorry, sorry, uh, objectify, <laughs> dude, I'm too old. I'm too, I'm too old. Uh, ob objectify. I think a lot of work that I make personally, and I don't know how you are, but I think a lot of artists, or you can find artists who do the same thing as I'm going to say now whatever you make next is a reaction against what you just made, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. like you find yourself in a situation and there's good and bad things. And eventually the bad things come, become too big to overcome, you know, they become un unbearable and you just react against it and you go, man, I got to do the opposite of what I'm doing now, like to move forward. So I was in a show, um, with, uh, you know, eight other people, eight other, ca eight other cast members in a big company, there was a bunch of technicians and there was a bunch of uh, producers and there. And I mean, it was to the point where, 
my juggling props would be set for me on the side of the stage in the right order. You know, I did not touch them. And I mean, to be honest, that kind of drove me nuts because as being a obsessive compulsive juggler, like, no, I need to, like, I want to touch them. I mean, that was kind of part of the work for me. But it was in such a big company, I just mean as an example of like, I did not pack up my stuff. And that was kind of significant for me. So it, it, it finally became too big of a, like the problems in this, in the, it was great. It was great and, and bad at the same time. And the things that were bad suddenly became so acute, I couldn't ignore them enough anymore. So I said, okay, my next project, I'm gonna be all alone. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh so that's why i wanted to make a solo show which meant really solo show i wanted to have light design i wanted to have music live music and i wanted to have uh production value in the in those traditional senses of, of those things so that meant i had to run the lights i had to run the music uh, i had to make the music live and at the same time uh, i was talking to, to uh ibar heckscher who, you know, our good friend who used to run the circus school in Stockholm. And Ivar had said a funny thing. I mean, he always says so many funny things, but this one was, because he's, he's, Ivar is very much about necessity. Everything has to be necessary. So what is the guiding force of, of what you're creating? It, the question is, well, is it necessary? Hmm. And so he, he was talking that one, one wonderful thing to do in his mind would be, you, it's like this, you you read the newspaper front to back every day for a month. So you're kind of taking in the local culture and the local current events. You're of that moment. You're, you know, you, for one whole month, you're as much in the moment as you can be in the society where you are. And then as people come into the theater, you look every one of them in the eye and you shake their hand and you say their name and you get the feeling of who this audience is more than you normally would, right? And then what you do is you do that performance that is necessary for that crowd in that moment. He was trying to concoct some sort of conceptual kind of, you know, thought experiment around that. And I thought that was a really funny idea. Mm -hmm. And I think um, like the company Protocol in France, like they're doing projects like that for real now. Mm -hmm. You know, they go to a city like five days ahead of time of the show and they walk around the city and they do site specific installation performances, but they record and interview local people and then five three days five days later they do the show in the town square and there's like actual recordings of the interviews that they play and it's very much supposed to be of that time of that place that's very relevant and necessary for those people to have this experience so i thought that was a really cool idea from ivar so then i had this idea and i said well great um i don't know if i can do this newspaper interview uh shake everybody's hand thing <laughs> But what I would like to do is that I would like that the lighting and the music and the juggling and the set design and all this, uh, the choreography of the show was modular mm. to the point where if I'm in the show and I get the feeling that the lights should be brighter, the lights can be brighter. <laughs> and if the music should be slower, I can take down the tempo of the, of the, of the song, but maybe make it louder. And if the juggling should be longer, well, I can juggle longer or shorter. I have material ready to go. That's also um, malleable in that way that I can make, I can extend it or shorten it and it's not going to destroy what I'm doing. In fact, it's going to be even better, right? So I had this idea from Ivar that everything should, it should be basically, ideally what we would call an, an improvisation, hmm. um, but the perfect improvisation, right? 
And uh, of course, then maybe the most perfect improvisation is also the most structured improvisation, the most planned out <laughs> improvisation or whatever. We, we often think that improvisation means freedom, but you know, like you said before, it's the opposite, right? It's, it's the constraints that makes the improvisation possible. And so the third thing to say about Objectify, which was also funny, is that uh, I was really sick of doing premieres where everybody comes to the premiere and then they say to you, hey, great show. I can't wait to see it in a year from now after you've done it a hundred times and you really find out what the show is. Mm. And I also thought that if I was going to really be truly sensitive to the audience's quote unquote needs <laughs> to be necessary for them, I had to have complete control over what I was doing so that it was all second nature. So I could be open to the audience's, you know, rhythm or feedback or whatever was going to happen. And so what I did was I set a rule. I said, I'm going to make the show. And once the show is made, I'm going to run it 100 times before I do the premiere. <laughs> and I did. Wow. And uh, I have to say that was probably one of the best things I ever decided to do. Like that paid off, actually. Um, because, you know, and again, just to say, it wasn't like I did the show 100 times. And as I did it 100 times, I was still making it and editing it. It's like, no. I made the whole thing and then ran it a hundred times before the premiere. And the thing is on that show, that was really a good lesson was, um, I don't think I ever really achieved the original goal of having this sensitivity to the moment where I could really crank up the lights or turn down the music or whatever. Um, I did a little bit towards the end. I didn't do the show very much, but towards the end, I probably did it like 30 times or something. But towards the end, I definitely could at least play with the music and play with the juggling and stretch it out and have some freedom to play with the audience. That's for sure. But um, the thing I learned in doing the show a hundred times wasn't so much how to, you know, play with the format or play with the elements. It was to stop. It was how to fix mistakes. And that was amazing because I thought I was going to run the show a hundred times and, you know, build upon what I had kind of in one way, not to change it, but, you know, to make it grow and to learn it and to understand what it really was. But instead, what I realized was the show was an exercise in stopping things from falling apart, <laughs> like both in a technical way of just like, oh, the computer crashed and the computer is playing all the music. How can I make the how can I make the show continue without having to stop the show? And I learned to do that. And uh, I think on the premiere, the, com the, the computer did crash on the premiere. You know, it, it never crashes, but then on the premiere, for whatever reason, computer crashed on stage. Mm. I don't think the audience ever knew because I had done it a hundred times and pretty much every mistake I could make, not everyone, but many of those mistakes I could make, I had fixed them. And like, you know, we did our shows this week here and we had two new mistakes this week we had never had on a show we've been playing for what, five years or something. And it's just like every time you're just like, wow, I didn't know that could mess up, but it just did. And so that's what I learned on those hundred times of doing that show before the premiere was really how to fix mistakes and keep the the whole ship going forward. Right. Instead of I thought it was going to be a, like a, yeah, an exploration and oh, man, I'm going to be so crafty with my light design and I'm going to be so in the moment of jumping around. But it was more just like I'm going to stop this thing from falling apart. And that was really cool. I think that still sticks with me, this idea that the performance is about keeping things from falling apart. And not to be cynical or negative, but I think it's a nice, it has served me well to have that mindset of like, I'm going to keep things headed in the right direction rather than 
uh, I'm gonna, I don't know, expand upon the moment or whatever. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I think I, I get the, I get the, um, context for how Objectify was created. And I also remember now that time because, you know, I was around and I saw, you know, some of that stuff. Um, <clears throat> but let's move on to a, a, a prototype. So I know, of course, like that was around the time we were doing the RDL yeah. props. But was there something else outside of the Renegade Design Lab? So we had, yeah, m maybe say a little bit of something about the Renegade Design Lab, uh, lab. And then if there was something else, some other concept that was in play when prototype was being created yeah sure that that's easy to say too i mean it, that that stuff's all pretty pretty straightforward um so one funny thing about the the objectify show remember i said it was a reaction to this big company i'd been in i was like, i'm gonna be alone so also part of that part of that plan was well the show fits in two suitcases the props the light the set the music the sound system it fits in two suitcases. I could play that show anywhere and I could fly on an airplane with it. And I remember the first time I got booked and I went away on my own with two suitcases and I went there and I set up the show and I was at, I was at the theater or the space. I think it was in a basement of a theater actually. And I did the show and then I packed it up and I went back to my hotel room and then I sat there alone. <laughs> and I was just like, oh, I guess I should be, you know, careful what I wish for. Like I wanted to be alone and well, here I am. Like there was nobody to share that with. And that was kind of a funny moment of like, I didn't think about that, mm. right? But with the with prototype, the next, the next project, I also had this idea with um, Objectify, which is, well, slightly embarrassing to say looking back. But basically I thought if I, pre I didn't know how the world worked, I have to say. I did not understand how the world worked. And I thought if I produce work of a high enough quality, it will get booked. I thought that's how stuff got booked. If you made quote unquote good things, they would get booked. So I thought, okay, I'm going to do Objectify. It's going to be super good. And it's going to be so good that it's going to get bookings. And then so Prototype was under the same idea. So I was the artist. I was the director, the choreographer, the dramaturg, the whatever, uh, you know, um, the juggling dramaturg. Uh, I was the musician, the lighting designer, the costume designer, and all these things. And uh, but I didn't have a producer. I was the producer. And then so prototype was under the same umbrella project of like, well, I don't have a producer. I'm also the producer. I'm everything. And so we were doing Renegade Design Lab, which came out of the, in part, the Manipulation Research Laboratories. Because so we did three of those. And the third one of those is we started to talk about not just composition, but then a little bit like your own personal journey with your ghost cubes. But it was about not just composition, but the tools that you compose with. And that's where Renegade Design Lab kind of came in, right? There was, a, there was a symbiosis there between those projects. And so we were making these new shapes with, uh, with Tom from Renegade Juggling. And at the same time, I was working with, uh, with the Reactable um, tangible musical uh, interface and uh, manipulating the, sh the the different shapes on there so on, on the table to make music uh, live so there was a connection between the RDL props and those shapes on that table mm -hmm. and then because we had been making these Renegade Design Lab new prop shapes like the 
Well, I mean, we, I mean, you and, and Tom and all of, Luke Wilson and, you know, all of us. And it was like, there's the flathead clubs, there was the Mobius ring, there was the, the, the twin clutch hooks and... Yeah, the teardrop shapes and the... Yeah. And I, I really want, I really saw prototype as this um, kind of artistic proof of concept that the, that this Renegade Design Lab had a point beyond proof of concept. Yeah, it, it was it was like, hey, yeah, we can make these shapes and we can do a funny throw with them. And I was like, yeah, but these shapes are actually really significant. Like they they it's it, like just this concept of like the tools you use are important. I thought that needed to be justified. Like for my like I wanted to give a real a real uh, stand for like a real a real. Uh, yeah. Yeah, whatever. A, a strong statement of saying, hey, this is relevant. It's not just fun, a bunch of funny shapes that that's just for fun, but they're actually have a, a huge artistic impact on the work so that was that show prototype it was supposed to kind of justify this not justify but kind of show the potential to, to show the potential for what those props could do and um both objectify and prototype uh they did not play very much because i didn't have a producer and you know what uh making good work has nothing to do with selling a show <laughs> which is <laughs> Which I don't know if you have more to say on this on this kind of retrospective, but that does bring us to Josh and Lindsay with Reflex. I right? Know. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's kind of where I'm. I was trying to understand this kind of arc from 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 your beginnings and into this this show that you're about to do now uh, called Reflex. So uh, I th- I think that that was good that we did that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. Let's 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 see a little bit. So Josh and Lindsay are producing, but then you should also say something about Captain Frodo, and when did you find him, and how, and what's he doing? Yeah, well, hang on now, because the thing is, on this Subjectify and, and Prototype show, um, I didn't have a producer, and I thought, oh, you just make quality work, and then that then the bookings will come because like the 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 work proved itself somehow. Mm. And just to say, um, again, that's not how the world turns. It turns out that's not how the world works. Like you need, you need to have networking and there's a bunch of politics involved and there's the, there is the system of culture of how, of how culture is bought and sold, of how art is bought and sold. There's a market and there's a procedure and there's a, right. There's a system and the system is in one way has nothing to do with the quality of the work actually, or I mean, we don't need to dive into this too deeply, but just to say as a first step, the quality of the work is not the, is not the concern. The concern is the, the infrastructure of the company and the, and the customs and the way the tradition or the system of, of, of meeting people and networking and whatever. That's the first step. I mean, yeah. um, for, your sh- for sure, it helps if your show is high quality, but first you have to meet people to get them to know about the show that it could be high quality. That's what I was missing. <laughs> like... So here I had in my mind like really high quality shows, but I just had no system or method in place by which anybody would know about those shows. Like it was really, <laughs> really silly looking back on it. And so just to say then, uh, in terms of the process with with like Lindsay and Josh, it's just, it was so, um, yeah, overwhelming that they were, that they were enthusiastic about the project because I hadn't, I just hadn't I just hadn't found found a lot of help before, like in terms of the market, in terms of the process. And so 
working when you collaborate with somebody, it's always a new collaboration. When it's a new collaboration, it's always you have to find out how you're going to work together and what it means. And one funny thing that Josh had said on the first phone call, because I was I was like this, dude. I was like, hey, guys, I have this idea for this show. And it's like this. It's this uh, traditional framework for contemporary content and blah, blah, blah with these machines. <laughs> and Josh was like, that's so cool, man. Like, we totally got to do it. And I was just kind of blown away that a producer, that there was like a connection being made there. I was like, oh man, you know, objectify and prototype, that didn't, that did not fly business-wise, but this is pretty cool. Like this is a step forward or whatever. And I'm sure there was projects in between prototype and here. I don't remember at all. And uh, I remember saying to Josh, I was like, yeah, man, and we can do this show. Like I'll come do it in your backyard, like whatever, like mm -hmm. I'll come and <laughs> I'll come do it in Chicago. I'll come do it in Idaho. I'll come do it like wherever. And Josh goes, no, man, we're going to do this in New York City because <laughs> they live in New York. And I was so uh, I was so intimidated by that because uh, and we talked a little bit about this in the car uh, the other day. But um, just the connotation of like you're going to do a solo show um it's kind of a bit of a, some sort of, uh, what do you say, period, like, like a time in your career. You know, there's, there's, a, there's an element of like a retrospective there. Yeah, yeah. So it has like a larger maybe arc on your life, you know, and uh, in New York City and it's a solo show. And then that show in and of itself had just come out on, uh, on, on streaming on Hulu by Derek Delgadio. And he had this, you know, one man show on off Broadway that was just very sensational in every sense of the word. I mean, good and bad, like causing a sensation, you know, and um, and, and so that that was def definitely a certain flavor. And that came out um, around the same time of these discussions in the pandemic, you know, during the pandemic that that TV special came out of Derek Delgadio's show in and of itself. And he cr he caused all this buzz and this stir with his one 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 man show off Broadway. And I really remember one element of his show was that he's doing magic, but he's not a magician. Like he, mm -hmm. like I watched all these interviews with him um, to promote the show and he refused to say that he was a magician. He refused to say that he did tricks. He refused to call himself, you know, magical or whatever. And then I was, so I had kind of um, some preconceived notions about like what it meant to do a show in New York City, a solo, a solo show that it had to, it couldn't be maybe about uh, juggling, for example, because that wasn't what you do. Even even if you go to like like another great um, example of a of a one man show off Broadway is the, is uh, Ricky Jay and his Fifty Two Assistants. That was another re reference that we we have all the time now. And even that show definitely was about magic, but you could say that it was what you know for whatever this means. It was more. It was something more than magic, right? Mm -hmm. And so I really thought like, oh man, there's these producers from New York and they want to do this show in New York. And I was intimidated because um, I've never played the commercial game like that. I've been in commercial companies. I've been in, I've been in Spiegel World in Las Vegas. I mean, it doesn't get more commercial than that. But uh, in terms of my solo work or like our projects, we're not playing these international markets on this scale. Me and you, we're not going to BAM. We're not going to Brooklyn Academy of Music in New York, right? So, and I know that I'm at least smarter now than I was before with prototype where it's like these markets have demands, they have expectations and there's things you have to do to be in these 
move in these circles and to have your work produced and received and, you know, paid and bought and whatever, sold and everything. So I thought, oh man, now I got these producers in New York who seem super excited, uh, which is amazing. Um, and now I have this idea for a show, but now it has to fit in this context, which I never have done before. And I'm a little, I'm intimidated and I don't even understand that market probably. And I thought I had to do something else than what I normally did because, well, looking back on my life, what I normally did had never gotten there before. So I was just like, oh man, I got to do something new. And then I, I, I thought I needed some help with that. So then um, I called uh, this guy who I just knew a little bit. His name's Captain Frodo. Um, at the time, I didn't really know him very well. We had been performing in Las Vegas at the same time. And so I'd actually met Frodo in in Oslo around the year 2000. Mm -hmm. And he was doing a uh, freak show, sideshow work back then. And I really remember clearly seeing him back then and thinking, this guy is doing something else. <laughs> like he's doing this, he's eating glass or, you know, bed of nails or whatever, but he's doing something else than these other people are who are doing those, those things. And I think he had, you know, he was in a company, maybe like happy sideshow or something or the pain solution or whatever. Um, and I really remember thinking this guy is doing, he, he's got a different vibe to him. And I thought it was really fascinating and I couldn't put my finger on it, what that was. But then when we were in Vegas at the same time, I thought, and I'd seen him over the years, right? We, we met him over the years, me and you'd even met him at some places. And, and I thought, oh, this is my chance. I'm going to take, I'm going to take Frodo out for, for lunch and like, like talk to him and see what's going on with this dude. Because he has, I'd say, two of my most favorite acts in terms of the, the market that's out there of this, this quote unquote entertainment market versus like you could say commercial entertainment market versus the art market. Like, I mean, this is very easy to say like, like in, like La Villette in Paris, you know, plays artistic shows or whatever. Um, and you can say Spiegel world, you know, absinthe in Las Vegas is entertainment. If you want to have that conversation, I mean, in an easy way, but then Frodo and you've seen him perform too. Frodo, he's like, he doesn't care. He doesn't care that it's entertainment or art. He's just doing his thing. And in the entertainment, I would say in the entertainment context, he's doing like super art. And in the art context, he's doing super entertainment somehow. Mm -hmm. Like his work bridges both gaps, I thought, like very well. He's, he, and he's very conscious of that. And it's very, it's very carefully crafted. I mean, it's not by accident that it's like that. But he takes the opportunity to be in an, a quote unquote entertainment setting where you might be coming to a show that night and you're not there to be emotionally moved. You're just there to have some fun with your friends, you know. But then Frodo, he recognizes there are still opportunities to connect with people beyond what's obvious. Mm -hmm. So it's not like you just have to go on stage and act like you're drunk and then fart and fall over. And then that's the end of it. It's like you can do something more deeply meaningful but you also have to acknowledge that those people aren't there in the first place to cry, but you can get them to cry if you acknowledge the situation and kind of work with it. And he does, right? Like, I mean, the first couple of times I saw his acts and still in the can act, sometimes I cry, even I know it's coming because mm -hmm. because the way he's constructed it is just so powerful that you cannot, I mean, you're, if you're human, you cannot help but to, to, to engage with what he's doing. And so I was in this situation with Josh and Lindsay where I was like, oh man, 
I got to do this show in New York City and I'm from Ohio and I don't know what I'm doing. But there's one person who might know what they're doing in this situation. And that's Frodo. <laughs> so and this is really funny. So I called Frodo and I remember I totally remember this phone call with Frodo. So I called Frodo and, and I hadn't seen him since Vegas. Like we went out for donuts a couple times in Vegas and we always had a really pleasant conversation about art and life and entertainment and whatever, you know. But um, it was just like, uh, you know, there was no ob- there was no clear objective for the for the it was just hanging out. You get it? Like we're just chilling. So then out of nowhere, I call the dude. I'm like, hey, man. Uh, so I got this project potentially for New York City. And I don't know. This is like a totally random question. But would you would you like to direct the project? <laughs> and I remember him. He immediately on the phone without hesitation, without thinking, without anything goes. Yeah, that would be great. Totally. I'm totally going to do it. Like, no, no doubt. Like, yes, I'm in. <laughs> And then he was, and again, I was just so shocked by that this project just had had kept like moving in a positive direction without any snags so far. And it was just the next step was happening and leading to the next step and leading to the next step. And that was very cool. But then on that phone call, uh, me and you, we had just released Object Episode Podcast Season 1. And so Frodo, he also had a podcast. Uh, it's called The Way of the Showman. I mean, he's, he's, he's doing his second season right now. And so he was kind of into this idea about podcasting and and listening to thoughts and sharing ideas. And so he listened to our podcast. This was before I asked him to direct our show. And he was super into our podcast. And he had also seen my my TED Talk thing from Helsinki about the, the juggling ring stuff. And he was super into those ideas. So I'm on the phone with Frodo and he's like, yeah, I'll totally direct your show. And he goes, you should make a show. That's like your TED talk and it should be about juggling like everything you and Eric are talking about on object episodes. That should be the show. And what's so funny about that, right, is it my whole reason for contacting him was that I was like, I can't make a show about juggling. <laughs> like it has to be about something else because I'm going to New York and like Derek Delgadio, he's not a magician. <laughs> like, And it was just so funny um, that the initial phone call, Frodo was just like, you got to do a show about juggling. It's got to be about everything you've been talking about with juggling with Eric, about the history of juggling and the definition of juggling. And and it's got to be like your TED talk and you got to tell the audience about juggling. It's got to be kind of like more juggling than juggling. And I was thinking it was going to be about something else, you know? And that was like a really funny first step to the to the process um, with with having Frodo involved. Okay. Yeah, no, but that that's... Uh... That that's fantastic. So, so the, obviously you had to rehearse this show. He's in, he's in Norway. You're in Stockholm. It's COVID times. <laughs> how how can you say something about that? Oh yeah. Well, yeah. I'll say I'll say a couple of things. Like we were really nervous. Um, I mean, dude. You know, any new collaboration, you you got to find your way. Yeah. And what was really funny with this process with Frodo and with, with Lindsay and Josh is when you're, and I, I mean, I think it's with me and you too, but me and you, we have a, we, we, we have a history that's longer than my history with the, with this team on the current show reflex. Uh, but me and you, we still, when we go into the studio, when, like when we made Apparat last year, or we make it, we start any new project, even when we start recording season two of object episodes that we're doing right now, right? Mm. We have what you're confronted with is an unknown. You don't know what's going to happen next. You don't know how to get there either. So you're trying to do two things at the same time. You're trying to define what's the goal 
and you're trying to formulate the method by which to achieve that goal. At the same, it's a parallel process. And the hilarious thing is, like with Frodo, now we've been working on the show um, like a year, like a little, over, like maybe a year and a half or a little less than a year and a half. And it's like at every, at every moment, um, you're kind of lost and then you find your way and you're like, yes, oh, this is how we're going to do the next two weeks. And you, you get through those two weeks and you achieve that goal. And it was like, you're really happy you found your way through it. And then you're back to the beginning because like you have to define the next goal and you don't know how it's going to happen. So it's been this real kind of like roller coaster of feeling each other out. We're working. We don't know. We never worked together before. So we have to like, we have to figure that out. We have to figure out what in the world the show is in relationship to Lindsay and Josh. And I have to say in terms of producers, I've never, and I don't, I don't, I don't mean this is a representation of, of all, this is not a generalization of all producers in the world. I'm talking about my life here, my experience. I've never worked with a production team like them who, who are producers who are happy to be producers. <laughs> they like producing. They don't want to be on stage. They're not producing to, they're not, they're not doing production work so that they can pretend that they're artists on stage. And that's the, that's a lot of times the other producers I've ever worked with in my life is that they want to be artists themselves, but for whatever reason, they ended up in, on the other side of that uh, divide there and they're doing production work so that they themselves can be creative in a way that is more they want to take their place on the stage or the credit on the stage or something. Um, and it's not a problem of my ego. It's just a problem of process and, and communication and, you know, ideas. But so, so Lindsay and Josh, they like producing and they want to be producers and they're engaged as producers in a creative way as well. It's so refreshing. Like I've never been on a project like that. And so Frodo and I are trying to figure out how to work with each other. We're trying to figure out with, with Lindsay and Josh, what the show should, what the show needs from a production standpoint, which also includes the artistic idea and the format and the like very pedestrian things like the length of the show or the size of the show or whatever, uh, the format of the show. And so at each step of the way, Frodo and I are like, well, what are we trying to do here? Finally, you crack that. Okay, that's what we're trying to do right. That's where we're at right now. Like we're we're at this point right now and we have to take the next step, which is that. And then that takes a long time to figure out. And then how are we going to get from here to there that we figured out we need to go over there? Oh, we can use this method. And then you're talking about corona. So, yeah, exactly. We thought we would we would suffer a lot through these virtual uh Zoom meetings and and phone calls and whatever. But that's what we had to do. Like we just couldn't leave our house. Like we just yeah. couldn't meet. And so I wouldn't say that the corona was so much of a of a challenge as as you might maybe would think. It was more this kind of uh, this parallel process of figuring out where you have to go at the same time as figuring out how to get there constantly. It was a constant like re rebirth or re evolution of like the the process. Mm. So that was kind of funny. And if I can talk a little bit about then specifically the process in terms of the content, because um, it, it's also kind of a funny story that I don't think I've told you, which was, um, so yeah, when I, when I talked to Frodo that first day and he's like, I'm going to direct your show. It's got to be about the TED Talk. <laughs> like he was so high on the TED Talk. The, the TED Talk is super cool. And then in my mind, I'm talking to Frodo on the phone and I'm like super, I'm, I'm legit super happy. He said yes. And in my mind, I'm like, oh yeah, we're not doing that. We're not doing the TED talk. That's, that's obvious. <laughs> like we're not doing the TED talk. 
And then there was a, there's a moment of learning with when I was talking to Frodo in the initial stages of the project where I had to figure out when Frodo says something, he's saying it from his perspective in his world. I need to translate that into my world because he's not a juggler and he doesn't know my work uh, very well. Like, I mean, I mean, I mean, intimately like I do. And, and I mean, I sent him a bunch of videos and whatnot and he's seen me perform, but he doesn't know the work as good as me. And so, uh, he would say a comment on his end, like, oh man, you should do, you should do this, uh, like retrospective of juggling history where it's like in eight minutes, like the history of dance, there's some like, like viral history of dance, you know, on YouTube where the, they go through all the styles of dance in like four minutes. Right. Like, oh yeah, you could do that with, uh, with juggling of all the time periods with the different musical styles and this and that. And I, I, again, that's why I wanted to work with him because he has ideas like that. And I'm, I'm not, I was thinking like, yeah, that's, that's more along the lines of what I'm thinking that we need to make juggling in one way accessible to, to a New York city audience or whatever. Um, but I would always have to interpret in my head what he said into what would it, what, what it would actually mean into my world. And just to break that down is that the larger scope of our challenge of, of like the, the challenge we were trying to solve was this idea of, again, people coming to see the juggling machine, for example, and having them actually watch it and not think that it's weird or contemporary or experimental or whatever other label that would normally be stuck you know, over it or under it or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so we had this idea of making the work accessible, but the work wasn't maybe necessarily the most straightforward uh, normal style of juggling that you've ever seen in the, in the presentational way. So yeah, there was a little challenge to solve there. And so still in my mind at the beginning of the process, I was like, well, clearly the show's not about juggling because that's not what you can sell um, in, in New York City or whatever preconceived notions I had about the market. And uh, I was still thinking the show was about something else. And then, well, to skip over a year of, of process. So, you know, the show's about juggling. <laughs> and it's basically we start with a TED talk. <laughs> we call it the TED talk in the in the internal script. I mean, maybe if you go see it, I don't think you would think it's necessarily a TED talk, but that's where it came from. And the show is about juggling. It's about my life. It's about my biography, which was another thing I absolutely did not want to to dive into. I thought that was completely cliche mm. to do a one a one a one person show that's that you start sharing stories about your life and talking about your yeah your growth and whatever. And, and, uh, and I also talk about everything we talked about on object episode season one. So basically that first phone call with Frodo, who, when he was like, you should do all those things. That's what we're doing now. But I actually, I mean, it took me a year to get there, but I actually understand what that means now in reality. Cause mm -hmm. at the time when he said that a year ago, I couldn't envision what that would actually mean on stage. And now that we worked on it for a year, I go, oh, yeah, no, this is what we're doing. But it's also we're doing it in a way that I can I can imagine that it's going to it's going to work. And so, um, yeah, we, we finished we finished writing the script. And it was really funny because uh, we did a run through run, run through of the show in June. Uh, like I ran the whole show with this first version of like a first draft of the script. And in that script, I tell a lot of stories about my life and my childhood and, and how I juggled over the years and, and blah, blah, blah. And um, in that uh, <laughs> in that run through, we did there was two things we learned. First of all, was that um, 
at the end of the show, I, I, I wanted to improvise a speech because Frodo is really good at, uh, in his acts, if you see them, which I think you can find them on the, on YouTube. Um, he does, he goes, he does the tennis rackets and he has, he's, he does this bucket stacking thing, but in both, in both of his acts, he, he speaks, um, very, uh, precisely in the acts to, to an emotional kind of payoff. And so in this, in this show, kind of at the end of the show, we wanted to do a Frodo speech that was kind of emotionally poignant and, 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 you know, necessary. And so in this run through in June, I just improvised that speech because, well, we didn't really quite know what the show was about yet. And, and I want to tell you about that in a second. But the other thing we learned was that in the, in the other text in the show, a couple of things was happening. Like one was that um, I was telling stories about my life that weren't connected to ideas about art or juggling. And those stories uh, about my life, I, I wasn't even interested to tell them, <laughs> let alone expecting that you should be interested to hear them. So we ended up cutting away all the stories that were about my life that weren't connected to uh, some sort of concept about juggling or art or life or whatever. And then the other thing we, we had in the script was a bunch of concepts about juggling that weren't connected to stories about my life. <laughs> and those were equally kind of dead. It just felt like a lecture. It felt like a TED Talk for real. So we kind of cut all those out and we told... And so any concept we tell in the show, uh, we tell through a story. But a nice kind of, again, go back to these references of like Ricky Jay and his 52 assistants and Derek Delgadio in and of itself. I mean, you've seen the Derek Delgadio show... And I really feel that Derek uses magic to talk about himself. Like that is kind of the, 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 the main thing. It's like, oh, I'm going to do these magic tricks, but I'm going to relate them to my life to, to kind of fill out this emotional impact of these stories about me. And I feel like this show that I'm doing with Frodo uh, is the opposite. Mm -hmm. So we use um, my life to talk about juggling. <laughs> mm -hmm. And that was kind of a fun thing. So then we, we, <clears throat> so then we fixed the we fixed those things in the script and then I had finally finished the script and I thought, okay, now I have to write the, the ending speech, you know, I have to write the payoff and, and what's the show about? <laughs> and uh, I was talking to Frodo for hours and hours and we would always riff and we would get to the, we would, we would have really nice uh, things to say and, but we never got to the end. There was never the payoff. It was always got to the end where I should make the grand statement about, life and the universe and everything. And it just like, what was it? Because in the end, the show is about juggling. And it was like, just to be clear, like the show is not that, oh, everybody should learn to juggle. Because I don't care if everybody juggles. And it wasn't even like, everybody should love juggling. Because, well, I don't think everybody should love juggling, like necessarily. And it was like, well, what are we really trying to say here? And so there was a couple of things that stuck out from the script I wanted to to share with you that maybe what the what the show was about and I won't do the ending speech you'll have to you have to come see the show but um, there was a really nice line that that Frodo came up with where he said um, you know going back to the original idea from the very beginning was I wanted to share this this juggling with an audience and I wanted them to actually see it I wanted them to come see the juggling and they maybe wouldn't normally come see that juggling or they would have these preconceived notions and we wanted to kind of engage that. And so Frodo had this, this nice line of, you know, if you look at somebody juggling three balls and you don't immediately ask them to see, to see four, mm -hmm. if you don't immediately ask them to juggle one more, then there's maybe a, a value that you can find if you're just patient with, <clears throat> excuse me, with what's, with what's there. 
already. And that, that brought me up to this idea that, that brought up to me this idea of what's beyond the trick. There's something that's beyond the, the value that goes beyond the technique. And we were talking about this in relationship to dance, for example, you know, there's the, the, uh, uh, move, you know, you, you, you do, you move your, you move your arms around or you, you do a pirouette or you jump or whatever. And it's like, well, is it about how hard it is to move your arm? Not really, but it's about what is, what is the value of that technique? The technique is moving your arm like a porte bras in ballet. That's the technique, but I don't think that's the value of, of dance or at least that's not what is the cultural perceived value of dance. So there's something that's beyond the technique that you value. It's the emotional experience of watching that or whatever. And we really wanted the audience to look at juggling in the same way that I look at juggling, that you look at juggling. And again, they don't have to agree with it or like it, but if they at least just look at it for a moment and say, oh, you're, th you're swinging three sticks around, that's cool. Instead of Oh, what are you doing? What's that supposed to be? Is that hard? Oh, you can't drop. They're all tied together. <laughs> that you you go into some sort of uh, relationship that you can kind of make, you can have them look through your eyes at juggling. I thought that was a goal of the show, and I mean, yeah. So that I mean, the show really is about that whatever it is that people experience when they see the juggling, and unfortunately, I don't think you can put that into words. Because um, if you could, you could write a really nice press release, but. <laughs> But what I liked about the show, using text in the show, is that in the end, I think the juggling, we wanted, we were really concerned that we're doing a juggling show here and we're not doing a a monologue or a, a one-man play. It's a juggling show. So the juggling needs to, to be the, to be the, it needs to prove the point of the script of the text and that the juggling speaks for itself. And I think that we found a lot of connections in the text that lets the juggling actually prove the final point to all the, the ideas that the text brings up. And that feels really, really cool. Um, the, the idea of, of not yelling, can you do one more? That brings John Held to my mind. John Held had this... Uh, from Airjet. From, from Airjet. Yeah, yeah, you know this better than me. But he said something about juggling that the, the audience that watches it, they can never get over the technical the skill the skill side of the juggling and therefore there's that barrier of of that skill that makes them it's impossible for the audience to enter that inter interpretation from another perspective than from skill yeah i mean he i mean he essentially stopped juggling because of that and in what is from what i understand i mean from one perspective you could say that he said you know juggling can't sustain a, a lot um an expression that's that's and that's deeper and its only value is maybe a five to eight minutes kind of sensation or a special effect even you could say in a, in a show and i i mean i strongly disagree with that i mean i'm still here at least i don't know i don't say he's right or wrong but i mean i guess fundamentally i have to tell myself that he's wrong because i'm still here doing a whole show with juggling well i mean in a way like disagree like you're still now you and Frodo are discussing this thing. So it's not like you necessarily agree, but the question is, is it possible to, for the audience to change that perspective? That's the question. And I feel like if you're gonna, if you and Frodo are saying this, then you're sharing John Held's observation that that is the perspective that the audience is looking for. The question is, 
how do you make how do you guide them into another place and is that even possible mm. i think that's the question that's interesting to think about yeah well, what do you think <laughs> do you is it just like you don't know or you have an intuition that it's possible well i mean i've just to say like i've shared i think i've shared john held's uh, experience a lot of times with juggling i remember i remember when i did the the, the first uh, the first apparatus in the show that we're playing now, uh, Blick, which is the one that we call the aquarium, uh-huh. which is actually two sheets of glass that is like a, it's an uh, expanded in size uh, little thing from Pythagora switch mm-hmm. uh, film where they have they have these two pieces of glass. They're probably like a, a decimeter or so in in the Pythagora switch uh film and then the little marble rolls there and it looks like the marble floats yeah. when it's behind the glass and i was like oh that would be cool as a little juggling machine or as a bigger juggling machine yeah so i built that uh, but but very big and for uh, juggling size balls and th- when i first built that machine i built this little like a little trolley for it so I could easily like move it around because it's big and it's glass so it's heavy mm. and I used that for a couple of strolling gigs that I had <laughs> okay. so I was rolling that around in this in this like yeah this convention place and I was you know rolling bo- floating balls in in between <laughs> these two glass sheets of glass and I thought I thought it was it looked incredible. I'm just like, oh, it looks like the ball's floating. Like, what's going on here? Like, yeah, that's yeah, yeah. something you can watch for, you know, 10 seconds. Right. And I remember this guy, and I think a lot of people did, but there was this one guy who came up to, to me when I was doing that. And he's like, oh, I, I think I could do that, he said. Something like right, that. right. I, I think I could do that. Right, right. Like, so to him... I think it was exactly that John Held situation. He was looking at at I was doing and he only evaluated it from the perspective of skill. Yeah. Oh, that doesn't look very hard. Yeah. And then his conclusion, oh, yeah, I could probably do that. Therefore, it's not val it's not worth the Exactly. Yeah. And th- and that was it. Like there uh. was no like cuz you could I mean just a proposal here even if you make that conclusion and it's a perfectly valid con- conclusion it's not hard to do like i agree with him yeah but maybe then you could go oh but it's kind of odd how the balls are moving behind those sheets of glass and how's that you know construct constructed and you know well that's a primi- all these things right that's beyond yeah. that well, that's, skill aspect that's the and that's the entire premise of the show with frodo is yeah. that is that there is something more to juggling besides skill difficulty or risk yeah. That's kind of what we talk about a lot. There's something more than skill, difficulty, or risk. And I find this idea of risk, you know, that is the main, that's still the main value by which anybody talks about circus these days, even in the academic fields. Yeah. It's the idea of risk is the main focus of the work, especially with juggling, because you could drop, or you could mess up, or with acrobatics, you could, you could die. Yeah. And I just don't find that to be the fundamental value of any of those things i'm sorry i really don't i think it's it's what you just said aren't the balls moving in a strange way and and what do you feel when you see those balls moving like that and and that's not that's not uh theoretical man because we start our shows with we start this blick show with that and we do it for kids 
And what do all the kids do when we start that, when you do that first roll? Whoa. Right? Yeah. That's not, that's not uh, fantasy, man. That's real life. Yeah. And so I don't, yeah, I, I don't know. But, it, but I, I'm still like, I'm still thinking about that dude who, who said that. Uh, and I, I wish like, I don't remember what I told them. Like I probably rolled my trolley <laughs> further <laughs> into the convention center. But I'm, I'm thinking like, is there a one liner? How do you, how do you open people's perception at that point when they've made that conclusion? Uh, is it a, something you say? Is it something you do? Um, yeah, that's that's well, a it, question that I find interesting it, to think about. Yeah. Sure. Well, it reminds me of when I was doing those blue blue and gold uh, uh, Cub Scout banquets when I was when I was a teenager talking about my performing history. Right. I would go do this. This is this is actually a story we cut from the. <laughs> We cut from the show because uh, we found well, we found a, a stronger one for the a more appropriate one for the for the performance. But still, it's exactly what you're talking about. It's that I was a teenager. I would go do this stand up comedy, telling jokes uh, in between, and then I would do my three ball routine. And then at some point in the show, I would do the joke. I would do the. Uh, I'm gonna juggle not three, not four, not five, not six, not eight. Not nine, but seven balls or whatever that line is, right? And uh, then I would juggle the seven balls or whatever, right? And that was the whole bit. And then after the show, I, I really distinctly remember this when I was like 12 or 13 years old. Somebody came up to me after a Cub Scout, Cub Scout banquet and they were like, man, you were juggling seven balls. And I was just like, oh, yeah, yeah, seven balls. And they said, that must be super hard. And that comment completely caught me off guard because I, in my mind, I went like this. Well, I guess it wasn't so hard because I did it. And like, I'm not particularly special. I just practiced it. I just learned it. Like, so was it hard? Not really. I just did it. I don't know. And then what they said next was, I could never do that. And I remember being like, nobody's asking you to do this. <laughs> like, that's not the confrontation of why I presented it. But it's the same thing in the guy with you with the, with the floating ball. And just this idea of, of juggling does definitely um, provoke that reaction in a certain number of people as an initial response. I mean, you, you've, heard, you've heard so many people say that, oh my goodness, I can't even do two, right? You do yeah. three, oh, I can't even do two. And it's like, no, but that's not, <laughs> that's, not the, that's not my intention. But I do recognize that culturally, that is perhaps one expectation, that there is a confrontation, a human confrontation in our culture where you're confronted with somebody doing three balls, maybe tricks or maybe doing seven clubs or whatever you go see Anthony Gatto and La Nuba, you know, 10 years ago or whatever it is. Yeah, it's kind of interesting psychologically that's, that juggling to some people is the primary thing that it, that it, that it brings out of them is, is, the, is to, to uh, connect it to their own like physical... Self-worth. Yeah, self-worth and inadequacy, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there, there's something intrinsic about that, yeah. and I'll give, I'll give, the, I'll, I'll concede that to John Held, mm. but I still think that the the whole premise of showing the work is that there is some value there beyond that risk, beyond that risk of failure, beyond that, beyond the difficulty of learning it, etc. I just don't find that relevant. And when I was twelve or thirteen years old, whenever that was, um, I didn't have the language to express that. Because I could only talk about juggling in terms of its skill and difficulty and risk. 
But then when I discovered dance and uh, when I was 18 and I started to understand that dance is an aesthetic and it's an expression through movement and there's a composition and there's a, all those, you know, whatever, whatever things that dance does that makes it an art form. I thought, oh, those, those things can be applied to juggling. And that's when I started to apply them to juggling. I had a language that I could talk about juggling more than, oh yeah, I practiced seven balls for two years or whatever. Like there was something more to talk, to say about it. You could say, you could talk about the rhythm or the shape or the pattern or the form or the composition or the, yeah, the aesthetic, the, the, the dynamic that, that it exists in, only in time, that it's only through the passing of time that it exists and it starts and stops when I start and stop and blah, 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 blah. Like you can start to connect some other concepts to it at least beyond, oh yeah, I practiced, uh, practiced that trick. Um, so that was kind of my, my, uh, <laughs> my evolution with that. But I, yeah, well, so there was, there, there's another story. Maybe we finish this up now, but there, there was one other story from the show that got, that got cut, but I think I, I want to tell it to you. And I don't think I've ever told it to you. And it's actually a story I want to tell you because you're going to fill in the blanks <laughs> probably. So, uh, so yeah, in, in this show, when I was, when I was writing the script with Frodo, we were going through a bunch of stories like about my career. Cause I've been in some, some silly situations, right? And, and sometimes these situations have proved a real truth to the, to this, to the, to the quality of juggling and the situation of juggling, just like we've been talking about right now, how people perceive juggling, right? So one of these, one of these stories that, that just didn't, wasn't quite relevant, but I think it's, uh, it's fun nonetheless, is that I was performing in Moscow. You ever been to Moscow in Russia? Yes, I yeah. have. All right. Well, I don't know. Were you doing shows there? Uh, yeah, I have performed in Moscow. Yeah. So I don't know if you experienced the same thing as me. And this was, this was just how I was told at the time. So please don't think I, uh, what I'm about to say is something that I, I'm, I'm no authority. <laughs> but what happened to me was I performed a show there. And when I came off stage, there was, I, I, I came off, I came, I did the whole show and I came backstage into my dressing room. And I'm, I'm literally off the stage. So I'm sweating. I'm looking for some, a towel and some water. And I'm in my costume sweating buckets. And there's like five or six people standing in my dressing room. Did you experience this? No. They were strangers. I never met them before. And like my first thought is like, okay, all my money's there, my passport, my backpack. Like how are these people in this room? And then somebody explained to me, and I don't know if this is the case at all, but this is what, I, this is what they told me. They said, well... These people, they, they, want to, they want to get some social status. So then it's, it's cool to go, to go be hanging with the performer backstage in the dressing room because you get a higher social cachet, right? Do you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like they want to kind of, that's like the culture there. It's like, oh man, after the show, I was in the dressing room with, you know, Eric. And he was like, we were there hanging out. Like they're hanging out with the performer after the show because it makes them more cool or something. So this happened, this happened the first night I come backstage and just to say, I was kind of, I was kind of confronted by this. I was a little bit, you know, shocked. I was like, who are these people? What are they doing here? I was surprised. And I just wanted to drink some water and like dry off and take a shower, you know? And so I was kind of annoyed is what I'm trying to say. And this woman came up to me and she was pretty, pretty, pretty small and very old. I would say she was around between 80, 85 years old. And she was very, very wrinkled, very aged. And uh, she spoke super, super poor English. 
and the only thing that was worse than her English was my Russian. So I, I concede to her. I mean, I mean, I, I respect her for speaking what, what, what language we did share. Like, I, I really respect that. But just to be clear, the communication was not good. It was not good. And I'm, I'm a little bit pissed off, right? Because I just want these people out of my life, like out of my room. <laughs> and so she comes up to me and very slow, you know, and I'm just like sweating. I can't find the water. And she goes, you were very good. And again, that's like, I'm, I'm, I'm taking liberties here. It was not that clear, but basically she said, you were very good. And I said, oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much. A little bit dis dismissively, like get out of here, like whatever, just leave. And she goes, yeah, you were juggling eight rings. And I just, and then I kind of woke up a bit, right? And I'm just like, cause I did juggle eight rings. And then I'm like, oh, I bet she's somebody in the circus. Because that, that's, that's the type of person who would notice if you were juggling eight rings. And I bet she was a juggler. And I bet not only that, I'm in Moscow. <laughs> I bet she was somebody like super, super good and super famous. And like, this is like a star of the, of the old Soviet circus. And this is an awesome moment I'm having right now. So then I got a little bit happier. And I was just like, yeah, I did do eight rings. Like, thank you so much for noticing. That's really cool of you. And I said, How, you know, you, you must be a juggler. And she goes, yeah, 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 I was a juggler, but I was nowhere as good as you. And I'm just thinking in my mind, like, yeah, right. I bet you were like amazing, right? And she goes, no, 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 no. I was never as good as you. I only ever juggled seven rings. And then I go, well, seven rings is awesome. Like, come on. I mean, I'm sure you're, you were, I mean, seven rings is amazing. Like that, that's a great trick. Like, thank you so much for coming to the show. It means a lot to me that you noticed my work and like really sincerely, thank you. And she goes, yeah, I juggled the seven rings with a, with a, with a pole balanced on my head. And then I was like, yeah, well, okay. <laughs> like you're clearly an amazing juggler, like way better than me. Um, that's, that's a great trick. And she goes, yeah. And on top of this stick was a bear. And then I just go, uh, okay. This woman is crazy. It's a problem of language and she's crazy. And now I'm pissed off again and like get out of my dressing room. Cause like she's pulling my leg, you know? Like I went, from, I went from this moment of like, oh my goodness, it's like a star of the, like, you know, the old Soviet circus to like, oh, okay, this person is just like, doesn't know what they're talking about, right? And so then I'm just kind of like, oh, that's nice. Seven rings with a pole with a bear. Sure, cool, bye, you know, like this. And so then she, and, and we say goodnight or whatever. And I say, nice to meet you. And she leaves. And I'm just, I'm, I'm just thinking about this. That it was kind of a funny story after the show to tell my friends, like, and then she said she had a bear on the pole, you know, and it was just like, ha, 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 ha. So then the next day I do a matinee show and I go back to the dressing room and she's back in the dressing room again. It's the same woman. And um, she had come to see the show again. She came to see me juggle again. And then I had, I had in my mind, I was just like, I'm going to ask her the story she told me last night about her act. And I'm not going to prompt her. I'm not going to be like, hey, you said you had a bear? I'm not going to say anything, right? Because I thought she was just crazy making stuff up. So I was just like, hey, it's so cool to see you again. Can you tell me again that trick you used to do? And just to see, I thought she would make something new up, you know, like just out of nowhere. And she goes, yeah, I used to juggle seven rings with a stick balanced on my head with a bear on top. And the bear used to do, used to take the rings and pull them down over his head. And I was just like, this is too far out. Like it was word for word from the night before. 
and it was just too accurate that she really said the same story. But then she had added that the bear pulled down the rings, right? So I was like, there's no way. This is totally insane. So I got her name, and this is where you step in. What's her name? Do you know her name? I, I don't, I have no idea. I mean, I, I forgot pictures like that in Carl's book. Yeah, hold on, hold on. So I, with bears and stuff, but hold seven on. rings, I don't think I've seen that. Hold on, hold on. So I, I had her name at the time and I, I should really, I should really look it up. Um, but, but I got her name and I went straight home. I went straight to the hotel from the theater and this was back in the day. This is back like early mobile phones. It, it, and I, ca- I called from Moscow to Karl Heinz Ethan in Berlin and it was a big deal. Like I paid, you know, like 50 bucks for that phone call or whatever. Like it was a big deal. But I get back to the hotel and the first thing I do is I call Carl Heinz Ethan and he actually answers the phone, right? Which is already a miracle that he answered. He was home and he answered the phone and he was like, you know, talking to me. And because uh, you always miss Carl, like you never get him on the phone. So he answers the phone and I just go like this. Hey, Carl, have you ever heard of, you know, insert this person's name here? Like, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he goes, oh, yeah, the woman with the bear. <laughs> <laughs> Like, true story, dude. The woman with the bear? And I just about fell over. I was like, yeah. What? What? He goes, yeah. She used to do this trick. She would juggle seven rings and balance a stick on her head with a bear on it. And I was just like, what are you talking about? Like, he knew immediately who I meant. And he explained to me that her father was the most famous bear tamer in all of the history of the circus in Russia. And that she and that um, he had wanted her to take over the family act, you know, like he was like she was the daughter of this guy and she he wanted her to inherit inherit the act. Right. But she wanted to be a juggler. Mm-hmm. So instead of um, taking the act, the father trained a cub. So first of all, that's the first like, you know, thing in my mind when she says a bear, I'm imagining like a full size bear on <laughs> yeah. a stick. Right. Yeah. But no, it was a cub that sits on top of the stick and the stick is i'd say maybe like not even two meters long it's not a crazy big stick it's pretty thick it's pretty thick around stick like it's a pretty thick stick i mean but like it's not crazy tall and it's not a crazy big bear and then the way uh, the bear pulled down the rings that was true mm-hmm. like carl said the bear pulled down the rings and since this story happened and this is where you're going to step in uh, after we're done recording now I have seen a picture of her in a circus ring with the seven rings with the bear balanced. I have seen a film of this trick. I've seen a black and white film and a live performance in a circus ring. It's like from a, from an above angle, a little bit of a, of a steep angle of the camera down to this trick. And what happens is she juggles the seven rings for like, I don't know, 20 catches or something. And then she stops and she throws one ring straight up in front of the bear and the bear kind of hugs it with both of the paws, with both arms. Because the bear is sitting on its hind legs. It's sitting up and hugs the ring and then kind of flips it, floops it over its neck. Mm-hmm. And she does that seven times. And the bear pulls down the rings mm-hmm. one at a time. So the bear doesn't do like a traditional seven ring pull down like, no. But it's just like one ring, bloop, two rings, bloop. And that's the trick. And I swear, like I can physically recreate for you the exact movement the bear did. Because I've seen the film and I've seen the photo and since that time, I, can, I cannot find them anywhere. And I'm thinking I saw them at Carl's house the next year when I went to visit him in Berlin, that they were in Carl's collection and they're not published on the internet. But we got to find that film and we got to find that uh, photo of this, of this trick. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, let's try that. <laughs> so that was, so that, that's my bear story. That's not in the, 
That's not in the show.